Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. Today I'm joined by Darren Tremblay, the author of the book Spying, Assessing U.S. Domestic Intelligence Since 9-11. Darren Tremblay has served as an intelligence analyst with the U.S. government for more than a decade, and he holds graduate degrees from the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and from the National Defense Intelligence College. Darren joins us today to discuss his views, which are not representative of any U.S. government agency. Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. So how did you get interested in this topic and what led you to write this book? Well, you know, I've been in the field of intelligence since 2005. And throughout that time, I've accumulated and aggregated a number of experiences. And back around 2015, I started thinking about the potential for writing externally on this stuff, because I felt that while intelligence writ large has been theorized and represented pretty broadly in a wide body of literature, U.S. domestic intelligence has had a far more limited exposure and has primarily been either accounts of counterterrorism or of violation of civil liberties. And so I kind of wanted to do a net assessment of the the overarching structure and identify what worked and what didn't, particularly after 9-11. And this is actually my fourth book. I had explored a variety of topics, including economic espionage and foreign influence operations in my previous books, and figured it was about time that I actually sat down and sort of after the fact laid the groundwork. So that's how I got to this point. And first off, when we're talking about domestic intelligence, can you just kind of explain what are we talking about and what's the government's role there? Okay, so domestic intelligence, it's a very, it's a very broad term. And actually, I prefer to use the phrase intelligence in the domestic environment, because domestic intelligence has a somewhat Orwellian connotation to it. And that's really not the point of what the U.S. government is doing within America. It is identifying threats, both foreign and domestic, that are operating on U.S. soil. And it is also looking for opportunities to develop an informational advantage on behalf of policymakers who can, based on that information, respond and develop approaches both to counter domestic threats and to deal with foreign actors who are either competing or taking directly adversarial action against the United States. You start off the book looking at just a big picture of the U.S. intelligence enterprise, and you come to the conclusion, obviously, that change is needed. And you opt to look at realignment rather than looking at maybe like a potential new agency. Why did you make the choice to take on that constraint as you wrote this book? Well, 
a couple of reasons, actually. A, I don't think we have the political intestinal fortitude to come up with a new agency. And I think the last major attempt to do this, Department of Homeland Security, A, left a bad taste in people's mouths as far as what it was ultimately able to accomplish. I mean, that agency is still struggling to come up with a coherent mission. Secondly, I don't think that, I think DHS was also a prime example of how politics ends up getting ahead of real considerations of national security when developing a new agency. I mean, neither side on the DHS debate really was as focused on the policy implications as they were on claiming credit for the creation of this agency. And so with that as the background, I realized, you know, we have these domestic enterprise through aggregation. And rather than trying to set up yet another agency, which is just going to result in further fragmentation, my thought is that we need to figure out how to develop comparative advantages among the agencies that we have in order to force coordination and collaboration that way. And you brought up a phrase I wanted to ask you about because in, um, I think it's chapter two, you start with looking at the FBI before 9-11 and that phrase evolution by aggregation comes up. Uh, can you talk to us about, you know, what does that mean and, and what did the FBI look like before 9-11 in this realm? As as you're aware, the FBI was the United States' primary domestic national security agency since well, 1908. And it's an agency which started out with a very small number of employees, um, specifically to serve as essentially detectives on behalf of the Department of Justice. Throughout the intervening years, as statutes were passed, creating additional categories of criminal violations, and as national security concerns continued to arise, particularly in the 1930s when the FBI really got into the business of counterintelligence and, to a lesser extent, counterterrorism, when you start thinking about the implications of sabotage, um, you have seen it evolve and take on more and more missions throughout the 20th century. And, I mean, by the By the 1990s, you were looking at reorganizations meant to address everything from cyber to non-state terrorist actors. And, I mean, the Bureau was the only game in town for those sort of investigations or intelligence collection. And I don't think there was really ever an attempt to sort of ask what the organization was about and what it was supposed to be doing. I mean... In the late 1970s, following the major intelligence investigations, the Church and Pike committees that issued their reports in 76, there was actually an attempt to establish a charter for the FBI, a legislative charter, uh, in the late 70s into 1980. That went nowhere, but even in that attempt to establish a charter, there was the, the Bureau's span of responsibility was so broad that those developing the charter actually ended up coming to the conclusion they would actually have to have two separate charters to actually encapsulate everything the agency did. So by 9-11, you had an agency which was spread so broadly that I would argue it had become ineffective. It had taken on too many missions and really no, it lacked a cultural center of gravity beyond get the bad guys. And 
That, of course, is a problem in and of itself because it sets the Bureau up as a reactive agency as to one, as opposed to one that is actually collecting against intelligence requirements that can provide policymakers an opportunity to get ahead of emerging threats. You started to talk a little bit about the formation of DHS. And in Chapter 3, you really dive deep into all the different moving parts and while I think most people know DHS came after 9-11, uh, can, can you talk a little bit more about the different parties that were involved and how those um, competing interests had an impact on the formation of DHS? Of course. So the concept of homeland security as a separate government function, first of all, predates those discussions, but came into play with the Bush White House. and. The original concept was to create a small office of Homeland Security within the White House, which would have served as a coordinating function. That was Senators Lieberman and Collins turned into a political fight, offering an entire de- offering a proposal for an entire department versus the White House's um, much more circumscribed approach. And so rather than developing an agency based on the needs of the country, it really turned into a political fight that pitted the Senate against the executive branch and ultimately led to the very rapid development of a plan to develop DHS, which I really don't think was well thought out. It tried to throw a variety of existing government agencies together into this new department without really thinking about where those functions fit, whether those functions were duplicated across the government or whether they were being wholly moved into DHS. So you ended up with a number of redundancies, a number of areas of competition between DHS and other government agencies. And ultimately this was a political decision rather than a policy decision. How did those changes impact domestic intelligence? For one, DHS picked up responsibility for a number of cyber elements. So the FBI's National Infrastructure Protection Center, which it had stood up in the mid-1990s to late 1990s to deal with cyber-related threats, protection of networks and whatnot, moved over to DHS and yet the responsibility for cyber investigations remained with the FBI. So that was one major split. Um, originally, DHS was supposed to have been a essentially an all-source clearinghouse for counterterrorism information. That was sort of a central element of it. And that was almost immediately kneecapped by the creation of the National Counterterrorism Center. And so suddenly D- one of DHS's primary raisons d'etre for existing ceased to exist within a year of the department's formation. You have the problem of immigration and customs enforcement, which came from the merger of several pre-existing agencies. And, you know, aside from the current scandal involving ICE, the, I mean, the bigger problem is that ICE basically replicates investigative functions of the FBI and other government agencies, including the Bureau of Industry and Security and the Department of Commerce already engaged in in terms of counterproliferation activities. Again, you ended up with an agency that had bits and pieces of missions that were already 
being pursued elsewhere. And so you ended up with greater fragmentation and greater stovepiping when the goal should have been to eliminate as many of those stovepipes as possible after 9-11. The book really centers around the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. And you talk about the ambiguity that surrounds those agencies in terms of the charter for the FBI and also the definition of homeland security. Does that thread carry throughout the book? Certainly the lack of the charter on the FBI side allows for the Bureau to implement or not implement functions as it sees fit. So, I mean, even before 9-11, when it came to outreach to the private sector to ensure greater security among private sector enterprises, you had several programs, uh, ANSWER, DECA, and then the Counterintelligence Strategic Partnerships, which sort of you know, popped up, went away, popped up again as needed. And so what you have is an agency which is reactive in nature. And I think that putting a charter in place, which would have held it accountable for more consistent coverage of a number of these national security threats, I I just don't think we've reached that point yet. And I mean, DHS does have an actual legislative charter in the form of the Homeland Security Act of 2002. But even that doesn't seem to have mitigated the perpetual tumult within that agency. I mean, they've reorganized their cyber component yet again this year. So a charter is obviously not the end-all and be-all. And DHS, of course, has the additional problem of bringing in the separate cultures of 22 different agencies. So a charter versus institutional momentum really isn't a fair matchup. And can you talk about what was happening at the FBI during the post 9-11 reforms? There was a lot happening in the FBI post 9-11. The Bureau's approach to intelligence post 9-11 was really a massive disappointment. And part of that was the, the lack of, I think, lack of understanding of intelligence on the part of its director, Robert Mueller, at the time. And, you know, Mueller was great for what he just accomplished, but at the same time, that sort of linear deductive thinking did not posture him well for reforming an agency and changing it from one that was historically reactive, investigating crimes with a case-closed mentality to becoming a true intelligence agency, which has to deal with perpetual ambiguity and the perpetual collection of information in order to identify specific anomalies, as opposed to assuming that you can just close the book on something. And so... Mueller's approach to intelligence within the Bureau and ultimately the way the Bureau implemented this was one in which intelligence was a byproduct of traditional reactive investigations rather than vice versa. Whereas investigation should be the result of identifying an anomaly within a broader intelligence picture, 
Mueller completely reversed it and made intelligence the byproduct of deductive investigations. And then, you know, this this continued emphasis on a reactive approach became even more acute with the threat review and prioritization process, which really ran counter to the post 9-11 ethos of integration with the broader intelligence community and broader national security community writ large in the sense that the threat review and prioritization process or TRP as it's known, um, really ended up focusing on the Bureau as the primary customer of what the Bureau was doing. And so seemingly in the incentives and disincentives it created did not encourage the FBI to collect on information which it might have unique access to, which might be of unique value to policymakers, but which did not directly enhance or advance the FBI's own perception of its investigative missions. And there's a there's an interesting anecdote in the um, 9-11 Commission Review Report that came out in 2014, which basically talks about how information uh, field office, the field office in particular had collected information which policymakers saw to be of great value, and yet the field office was penalized because it wasn't addressing TRP. And I think that is very telling about the Bureau's regression away from being an integrated element of the U.S. intelligence community in that it's not, it's, it's, its focus is on producing for one customer itself, and it has, in a sense, become a self-licking ice cream cone. Could you talk about what intelligence requirements are, how they drive work, and how they should be defined for domestic intelligence? So in very, very, very broad terms, an intelligence requirement is the articulation of information which is going to help a policymaker come to a decision on an issue that is of concern when it comes to U.S. elements of national power. So, I mean, that covers everything from diplomacy to information to military capabilities to economics. And while they're, while requirements are, you know, have been described in various and sundry ways, they have you know, been a consistent part of U.S. intelligence since before the founding of the modern intelligence community in 1947. I mean, there's in the research for a more recent book that I just finished the manuscript for, fascinating document, basically with the FBI you know, talking about how it is developing information from certain intelligence activities, which it is then passing along to other agencies because that particular information is of value to those agencies in fulfilling their particular missions. And, you know, you bring that forward. And again, it's intelligence requirements are often discussed in terms of broader issues of foreign intelligence, but I believe those requirements can be percolated down to the domestic level because ultimately you're still talking about activities and actors which impact either enhance or degrade U.S. elements of national power. 
And how does that relate to the organization you you talk about looking at actor-oriented versus implement-oriented type organization and strategy in, in domestic intelligence? That is a great question. One of the one of the structural issues that I identify in the book is that as the sort of broader U.S. domestically oriented intelligence enterprise, both you know, formal intelligence community agencies and other federal and even sub-federal agencies have developed, you have agencies such as the FBI, which are focused on threat actors. So criminals, foreign intelligence services, um, non-state terrorist actors, um, and then you've got agencies such as the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is focused on identifying the tools that you know criminals use. So you end up with these rather messy intersections between agencies, which are focused on, which have a very almost intersecting postures on how they approach their work within the domestic setting. And I don't believe it's tenable. I believe that it creates redundancy. And as I think I've mentioned in the book, I believe those agencies need to either be consolidated or matrixed in some reasonable way so that they aren't both competing for recognition or arrests based on the same case, but off of different predications <laughs> because you just end up with bureaucratic warfare when you allow that to happen. You mentioned some of the other agencies in the Department of Justice, such as ATF and DEA, and how their operations picked up some influences from the FBI with with some of the collaboration, um, thinking of the story about increased use of wiretaps. Could you talk about that? And does the FBI bring a unique skill set to the table that other agencies like DHS might be missing? I think the FBI does bring a unique set of skills to the table. I think the question is ensuring that those skill sets are applied in a coherent and consistent manner. And I mean, a lot of that isn't necessarily the FBI's fault. It's that, you know, historically, the question of intelligence as it exists within the domestic setting has been kind of a third rail for policymakers. I mean, nobody really wants to have that discussion because, you know, it conjures up some very difficult and you know, politically volatile questions. But yes, getting back to your point, I think the Bureau does bring some skill sets to the table and it has influenced the development of other agencies in very interesting ways. I mean, specifically, you mentioned the DEA example. And I mean, the Bureau since the 1970s had been required to work with DEA in part because DEA was, well, faltering to some extent. In fact, there was very, there was very serious consideration about actually merging the two agencies. Um, between 82 and 87, the FBI actually had concurrent jurisdiction with the DEA and the DEA's director actually had to report through the director of the FBI to the attorney general so within the course of that partnership, yeah, the FBI did bring quite a bit to the table and 
I mean, you mentioned the wiretap example, and I mean, you saw DEA sophistication and use of that, techno- that technique really begin to rise and you know, bring a more sophisticated approach to bear on the target set against which it was working. So it, it really becomes a question of what are you holding these agencies responsible to and then allowing them to apply their skill sets to actually address those issues. And I, as, I've, as I've said in the book, I think one of the big problems is that you know, post 9-11, the U.S. intelligence community and the U.S. national security community writ large really became focused on a single issue rather than focused on developing a comprehensive and adaptable intelligence enterprise. So almost two decades later, you have an intelligence community which was really shaped by the single issue of counterterrorism and, you know, examining any number of threat issues through that counterterrorism lens. I mean, you've heard terms like narco-terrorism thrown around when, you know, it would have just been, you know, drug traffickers prior to 9-11. Again, I think one of the major issues here is the policy issue of identifying what the United States domestic intelligence enterprise is actually supposed to be doing. And that will then develop a course into which these respective agencies can fit their capabilities and will also highlight which capabilities are needed and where the redundancies are and also where the gaps are in capabilities, which we may need to fill in order to fully carry out a domestic intelligence mission. You've got the components there, but we need to, we need to figure out how to use them properly. They want to talk about active versus passive roles in intelligence. And you speak to that much of DHS's role in this arena is passive. Can can you talk about, you know, what does that mean and what is DHS's role in the intelligence community as more of a passive uh, actor? Absolutely. The vast majority of DHS's collection is, it stems from DHS's role as a an agency which focuses on guarding borders and guarding infrastructure, whether, that, whether those are physical borders or cyber borders and infrastructure, whether it be pipelines or information technology networks. And in the course of guarding those, threat actors come to it. I mean, individuals try to cross the border smuggling contraband, um, criminal actors in cyberspace attempt to attack networks. And in the process of countering those and hardening those borders, DHS aggregates a great deal of information. And this information can be very very useful as far as identifying trends in malicious activities, which can then be used to develop countermeasures and to get ahead of those threats that we're seeing. Problem is, is that DHS also has active collectors, primarily in the form of immigration and customs enforcement, which really, in the grand scheme of things, are sort of outliers in what that agency's defining culture and defining mission really should be. Its specific role within the intelligence community actually comes in the form of two elements, the Office of Intelligence and 
assessment, OINA, and also Coast Guard intelligence, which is the second element within the IC under DHS's bailiwick. So as I mentioned before, the original concept for DHS was not to be a collector per se, but rather an aggregator of information from across the intelligence community when it came to issues of counterterrorism that, as we've talked about, did not play out as intended. But I think its analytic shop, OINA, can still play a very valuable role in taking the information which DHS, via Customs and Border Protection, or it's basically the various iterations of the um, cyber components, um, end up obtaining through monitoring networks and taking that information and aggregating it into an understanding of what the threats are out there, how those threats are changing, and how to ultimately get ahead of those threats. Passive collection versus active collect- active going out and you know essentially dispatching agents or whatnot to gather information. And I want to shift gears just a little bit because DHS has a connection with the fusion centers as we know them today. But you talk a little bit about the history of fusion centers. Can you tell us a little bit about where did fusion centers come from, first of all? Absolutely. The, you know, they, they really were heavily talked about after 9-11, but really the fusion center concept goes back to the late 1970s when DOJ, through the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, started providing grants to help multiple sub-federal state municipal law enforcement agencies develop develop a regional approach to combating criminal activities. After 9-11, these became looked at as, you know, useful platforms for counterterrorism. But as the years progressed, that counterterrorism mission sort of diversified as individual regions realized that counterterrorism wasn't necessarily at the top of their list of activities that needed to be dealt with within their particular regions. And so it's interesting to watch this come full circle. And you now have fusion centers, which take a much more all-hazards approach. So dealing with traditional criminal activities, again, as well as you know, remaining cognizant of terrorist acti- the potential for terrorist activities. Originally, these were going to be, the FBI was working with these, but DHS ultimately became the point of contact between this network of fusion centers and the federal government. And this actually brings up a couple couple of interesting questions, which include, what is the FBI's continued role in dealing with state and local authorities on an ongoing basis? I mean, I realize that from an investigative and intelligence collection standpoint, yes, the Bureau should be working with those agencies. But in terms of information sharing, which the Bureau has a long history in dating back to the creation of its fingerprint identification division, the Bureau really is not the appropriate agency for that at this point. I mean, if fusion centers are going to be the hub for information sharing between the federal government and sub-federal entities, then, you know, the various apparatuses that the FBI developed for sharing information, which ultimately coalesced in the form of its uh, 
Criminal Justice Investigative Services Division really should be moved over under DHS's bailiwick. And this is this gets back to what I was saying about DHS sort of being this fractured organization that didn't take on entire mission sets, but rather bits and pieces, which ended up putting it in a position where it was just one more area of fragmentation rather than consolidation within the federal government. So long story short, if you're going to put the fusion centers under DHS, which is where I believe they need to be, then you also need to move other federal information sharing apparatuses under DHS to complement that function. I guess that leads to my question generally about state and local government. And what do you see as the role of state and local government in domestic intelligence? I I think they have a very significant role for a number of reasons. First of all, they are obviously the eyes and ears on the ground. They are where things happen. They are the, the levels of government which must react first to something which is happening in their vicinity, within their area of responsibility. As an outshoot of that, they also have significant access to information because they are seeing things at that granular level. Those and the issues which they are facing, although, you know, at times not discussed in terms of national security, are threats to national security. You look at the issue even of local gangs, local acts of violence, you scale that up and you are talking about something which is a challenge to, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but conceptually a challenge to U.S. sovereignty. If you've got individuals who are basically carving out territory based on acts of violence. Similarly, activities of a lawless nature have also historically been exploited by our foreign adversaries to denigrate U.S. democracy. They've pointed to criminality within the United States as being sort of a slap in the face to what we are holding out as a democratic example, saying, hey, look, I mean, if this is democracy, look at what it's creating. So even from a diplomatic standpoint, activities at the local level are corrosive to U.S. elements of national power, whether it be economic implications at the local level, which in aggregate can have significant impacts nationally, or, you know, whether it be the threat that opposes to diplomacy and the United States' inability to portray its form of government as being legitimate and emulatable. You know, with that being said, state and local governments don't necessarily have the resources to attack national level problems. But as I point out in the later part of the book, there are areas where they are developing more robust capabilities. I mean, you the example that I point to is the increasing involvement of governments at the sub-federal level in developing cybersecurity and the assistance which the federal government has provided in order to bolster those capabilities. And I think the the more functions that the federal government can sort of delegate downward to state and local governments, the more resources that frees up at the federal level and also allows for a more incisive response at the sub-federal level. So I believe that, yeah, state municipal governments are, you know, an essential part of the U.S. domestically oriented intelligence enterprise simply because of the data they have and the issues which they have to address. You end the book with several recommendations and some ideas for reorganization and different directions you think 
the intelligence community should take. Could you walk us through your your main recommendations for policymakers and what you would like to see happen to improve domestic intelligence? Areas that I hit on were both conceptual and practical. From a conceptual standpoint, you know, obviously we need to do a better job at laying out what a domestic intelligence function versus simply reacting to the threat du jour is. We need to start thinking in terms not of counterterrorism, but in how domestic intelligence activities support and bolster elements of national power. And that can come from that has that covers so many different types of threats, both state and non-state. And you know, also using that as a starting point leads to the creation of an enterprise which is far more adaptable than what we saw developing post 9-11. The second part of that is going to be speaking with one voice regarding intelligence requirements. As I've said, requirements are, when they're discussed in intelligence literature, they are often looked at as, you know, how the U.S. does foreign intelligence collection outside of the country. But I think that a number of those requirements, I think the concept of requirements can really be scaled down to you know, identifying subsets of those issues as they pertain to the United States or as they pertain to information available within the United States. As far as developing a more coherent culture between U.S. domestic and U.S. foreign intelligence, we need to start talking with one voice on some of these issues. I realize it may sound trivial and somewhat academic, but, you know, when you're talking about aspects of forensics versus, you know, aspects of measures and signatures intelligence. I mean, the two are incredibly related. And if we are going to integrate agencies like the FBI into the broader intelligence community and facilitate information sharing, we really need to be working from the same dictionary. And, you know, at the practical level, we need to think about how we can consolidate key functions across the government. And I mean, I, I think one of the major examples of that is ensuring that DHS really does become the lead agency for information sharing activities. So again, bolster what already exists there by moving the criminal justice investigative services division over there. I, I think ultimately as we assess what we have in the domestic setting, realizing that, you know, what we've got was never set up as a coherent enterprise. It's something that has, you know, developed ad hoc over the 20th and first part of the 21st century. We really need to take stock of that and identify what the core competencies of each component are. And if we can, if we can boil down to those core competencies, we can also, you know, foster integration simply on market-based principles because we don't allow redundancy and therefore agencies will have to engage simply to accomplish their specific missions. Are there any other events, significant events that have occurred since 9-11 that you think have had an influence on how domestic intelligence has moved? 
I know you you referenced several in the book, but are are there any that you think were real touch points that kind of moved where the direction of of these agencies were were going? Certainly, nine eleven was a defining moment for U.S. intelligence, but. I mean, I, I think it's an issue of parallax. As we get further away from the attacks of September 11th, other issues, including recent problems of foreign political influence as well as domestic right-wing extremism, have become more prominent and, again, are forcing some reconsideration of what domestic intelligence should be looking at. And what concerns me is the possibility that we could end up making the same mistake that we made post 9-11. And rather than developing an adaptable enterprise that can pivot toward any given threat based on what the implications of that threat are for elements of national power, we will end up fixating on a specific threat or even a specific subcomponent of a threat. And, you know, again, orienting our entire infrastructure toward countering that one issue while others continue to crop up. That's, that's kind of where I am with that. It's, it's less an issue of, you know, new defining moments and more an issue of the defining moment receding further and further into the past and other topics taking greater prominence in the public's mind and therefore requiring a political response, which then leads to a bureaucratic response based on that, based on policymakers perceived priorities. Well, Darren, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you tell us about what you're working on now? Absolutely. At the moment, I've got a manuscript with my agency's pre-publication review division assessing sort of more of a historical piece. It actually looks at the evolution of the FBI's legal attache program, which is the Bureau's primary international arm, but goes back to 1940 when the FBI was tasked by the White House to stand up foreign intelligence coverage throughout the Western Hemisphere. And so the first half of that book looks at that sort of forgotten enterprise and reassesses the popular mythology that the OSS was the direct progenitor to the CIA and examines the possibility that bureau operations within Latin America actually had greater continuity to the creation of the CIA. And in a most heretical statement, the CIA may actually owe a significant amount of its early structure and development to processes that the FBI had pioneered. So that's that's off of my desk at this point. It's with our pre-publication review folks. I don't expect any problems given the fact that everything that I write is from an entirely open source research perspective. I mean, I draw a very clear distinction between what I know from work and what I know through archival meanderings. The project, which I'm hoping gets off the ground, it's my proposal actually is with my acquisitions editor right now, is a history of the relationship between the U.S. national security community, including the intelligence community, and private industry, starting in the 1930s with attempts to 
prevent sabotage and espionage activities against U.S. defense manufacturers. Walking through the Cold War and looking at the divergence that we've seen in recent years between what private industry does versus what government does and sort of the diverging delta between the two. And this is a particularly important issue at this point because unlike during the Cold War, private industry is no longer developing new technology in lockstep with the government. Government is no longer a patron of it. It is a consumer just like everybody else. And yet industry is developing capabilities which do have significant implications for U.S. elements of national power. And so the book, after looking at looking at that historical trajectory, attempts to identify ways in which government and industry can reach a modus vivendi in furtherance of U.S. national security. How that'll happen, I don't quite know, but that's half the fun of writing a book. Well, best of luck, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Spying, Assessing U.S. Domestic Intelligence Since 9-11 by Darren Tremblay is available now from Len Rinner. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.